The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to open your Bibles now, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And this evening we are continuing our study in the Baptist acrostic. And our letter that we're on now is the letter T in Baptist. And I'll just list for you the previous ones that we've been over. That's B for biblical authority and A for the autonomy of the local church. P is priesthood of the believer and T is to ordinances. And each of these doctrines that we've been through thus far has defined Baptist church beliefs for the last 20 centuries of the church. And it's not really hard for me to say which one of these that we've studied thus far that I think is the most important. I I think that would have to be the letter B, which is biblical authority. Uh, B is the, is the, the highest priority because everything else fails if we don't believe the Bible. And if we do believe the authority of the Bible, then the rest of all of these doctrines are going to fall into place because they are Bible doctrines. And as Baptists, we are more than happy to have the Bible and the Bible alone as the authority of our doctrine. And so that means that we're going to be led into the acceptance of all of these other doctrines because they are taught in the Bible. Now, as Baptists, we've always believed that there are at least two ordinances for the church. But I wouldn't be telling you the truth if I said that it's always been that way, at least that there weren't any others that had a difference of opinion. If you remember back when we started on the ordinances, I I mentioned that uh, in the early part of this country, in the frontier days of this country, there were some Baptists who believed in at least nine ordinances for the church. And you don't really need to panic about that because it's not like they believe nine sacraments that match the Roman Catholic sacraments. It wasn't anything like that. And uh, uh, they, w- they would never believe those types of things. But that belief in nine ordinances is an anomaly in, in church history. It didn't last for very long. And those people who believed those things were very quickly assimilated into uh, the rest of those who believe differently that there are only two ordinances of the church. Well, we progressed through the study of the first ordinance, which is baptism, and now we're discussing the second of these, which is the Lord's Supper. And at the end of the last message, we we did have the blessed privilege of being able to take the Lord's Supper, and we're just so happy that the Lord worked it out that way, that we could be on this particular subject when the Lord's Supper came up. So what I'd like to do now is to uh, continue with that message that I began a couple of weeks ago, and we were in one of the most controversial areas, uh, areas of Baptist practice. And as far as I know, only Baptists practice this, and only a small number of Baptists practice it in the same way that we do. Now, our view of the Lord's Supper grows out of our insistence upon local church doctrine. That is our ecclesiology. And that ecclesiology is distinctive, which also makes our observance of the Lord's Supper distinctive. Now, our text then is 1 Corinthians chapter 11. This is that familiar text we always read, or most often read at the Lord's Supper. And we begin here in verse number 23, where Paul says, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, 
And when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take eat, this is my body, which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood, this do ye, as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. There, wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation unto himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Now you need to keep First Corinthians open because we're going to look at a few scriptures here, so don't turn away from that. But these verses... Uh, give us the institution of the Lord's Supper, and they actually serve as a, as a pattern for the service. And you've noticed how that we do it. First, we break the bread, and then uh, we drink the cup. And uh, doing other things that we might do are, are not mentioned here in the Scriptures, although in the observance of the Passover, we do know that there were other acts of worship that took place during, during the Supper. Now, Paul, as he gives us the information here, he doesn't make any extra comments that, that, that happened um, during or uh, the observance or afterwards. There's no singing. There, there is no uh, singing that takes place between the, uh, the administration of the elements like we do, or at least there's no record that they did that. And there are some who look at this and say, well, th this is the pattern. This, this is the way that we're supposed to do it. And so they're very rigid about that. And they wouldn't actually like the way that we do the Lord's Supper because it seems very plain, it's a very vanilla thing, and so uh, since it's not, anything else is not mentioned, uh, they, they would say that we ought not to do it. Sometimes I, I like to quote from Edward Hiscock's book, which is a new directory for Baptist churches, written about uh, the turn of the 20th century. And it was Hiscock's idea to provide for Baptists some directions for practices in the church or things that are commonly done among Baptists and to explain those things to us. And he definitely had an idea, his opinion, about how the supper should be observed. Now, let me just read some comments from him. He said, The pastor breaks the bread and fills the cups in order, preceding each with a brief prayer of thanksgiving, as did the Lord, and passes the plates and cups in order to the deacons, who distribute to the members. It is customary for the deacons and pastor to partake after all the others are served. Some ministers seem to lose sight of the real purpose of the service or else lack the spirit of the occasion and talk during the exercises. After very brief remarks to introduce the ordinances and the equally brief prayer of thanksgiving, complete silence should prevail. A silence which the attendants in passing the elements should be careful not to break. It is presumption and folly for the pastor to draw the thoughts of the worshipers to himself when they should remember only him whose symbolic body is broken and whose symbolic blood is shed. This do in remembrance of me. I've read over Hiscock's comments several times. I'm still not quite sure if, if he would give a little bit of latitude to the way that we do things. But he seems to say here that uh, the elements uh, are passed and there should be silence when, when you do that, that there shouldn't be any talking that goes on. And you notice that we're very careful about that. I, I suppose there's not a greater silence that ever takes place in this church than when the Lord's Supper is being taken. 
Uh, as I've said before, if we didn't have carpet, you could hear a pin drop in here most of the time. And that helps to preserve the, the reverence for the supper. But then on the other hand, what Hiscox might mean is that once we start, that is once the elements have been introduced, that then all talking should stop. We do it, nobody says a word. Well, I think that it would be up to you to decide if you're actually distracted from the solemnity of the observance of the supper in the way that we do it, or if the way that we do it actually brings you under greater uh, consideration of the sanctity of what goes on when the Lord's Supper is taken. Uh, you, you, you can also decide if you think that what we do and stopping for a moment to sing the verses of the communion hymn that we sing, that stopping that somehow detracts from the supper and you somehow think that I'm drawing attention to myself because we do it that way. If that's what Hiscox means, then I am certainly uh, would have to say in no way would I ever want to take the attention away from the Lord and put it on us or anything else because it is the Lord's Supper. But I also know this, that in talking to people that have observed us doing the supper for the first time, that I hear comments over and over again how much they like the way that we do it. That it does, it, it speaks to the uh, how we feel that it's so important to us, that it's not just a, a ritual that we go through uh, two or three times a year, four times a year, it's not just a, a ritual that we do, get it over with and so forth, but the supper really does mean something to us. And I don't think that what the Apostle Paul gave us here in 1 Corinthians is, is intended to be a slap on the hand for anybody who wouldn't follow exactly the prescribed way that he mentions in just these few verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Now, the least that we ought to do is to preserve the order in which the elements are given, and that's because in all the uh, accounts of the Lord's Supper, the three other accounts of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, and then here the fourth account in 1 Corinthians, this is always the, the order in which it goes. You, you break the bread and then you give the cup. And I think that that's good that we do maintain that order. Now, Hiscox added a further comment. He said, it's, it's almost universal custom among our churches to take a collection at the close, the offering for the sick and needy, of which the deacons are the custodians and almoners. It's also a well-nigh unvarying custom to close with singing, in imitation of Jesus and the apostles, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. Well, as you know, we always sing Amazing Grace uh, after the supper is over, but one thing that we don't do, we never take an offering. I don't think there would be anything wrong with us taking an offering for the poor after we took the Lord's Supper. Perhaps your hearts would be somewhat softened because of what Christ has done for you, and you might think that's a very good time to take an offering. Baptist preachers love to take offerings. Baptist people aren't always excited about it, but uh, that might be a very good time. Maybe we ought to do that, just take an offering after the Lord's Supper. But uh, the, the, these are things that people consider as they do the Lord's Supper. So we do have a little bit of difference of practice. And, and as I said, I don't think that 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is it's to be meant to be set in stone for things that we can and can't do in the Supper. Just, I think we do need to keep the, the order of the elements intact. Now, looking back to the last time uh, that we met and talked about the Lord's Supper, we looked at, first of all, uh, the place of the Supper, the place of it. And since it is a church ordinance, the place of the supper would be where the church is assembled. Now remember we mentioned the church is not the building, 
It's not particularly that we have to meet here, but it has to be the church assembled. And the church is only the church when it is assembled. And so, so therefore, the church must be together when the Lord's Supper is taken. Now, uh, for that reason, we don't take the elements away from the assembly of the supper to give it to those who can't be present for the observance. And so we're sorry if you happen to be sick on the, on the night that we take the Lord's Supper. We're not going to save it for you. We're not going to bring it to you later. We're sorry if that happens. I'm sorry if you get taken to jail because you've been out street preaching and they decided to haul you off for the cause of Christ. I'm sorry about that. And that did happen in the past, of course. But we're not going to come down to the jail and bring you the Lord's Supper. We're not going to do that because we can't take it outside of the assembly of the church. To remove the elements from the assembly destroys the picture of the body of Christ as being whole and in in one place. Individuals are not the body of Christ any more than an arm or a leg is the body of Christ. Now, Several years ago, I, I used this illustration that if the police found a severed hand in the field... Uh, the man who finds that's not going to radio back, we found a body. Well, they're not going to do that. Uh, instead, they're going to say, you know, we need to find out where the body is that this hand came from. And if they should find the head and the torso, then they might say, well, we, we found the body. So at least we could say this, that there has to be a significant portion of the membership that would be present before we could call a church meeting a meeting of the church. So we got to keep that picture of the body intact. Well, moving on from there, then we began a discussion of the participants in the Lord's Supper. And at this point, the discussion does become quite a bit dicier uh, because there is a difference of opinion about who should be invited to the Lord's table. And this is actually determined by what we believe constitutes a church and what the church services are for. These services are a fellowship meeting of born-again believers who have covenanted together to worship the Lord and serve the Lord in this locality. And, of course, born again means that we believe that this is a regenerated church membership. The place of our meeting is here, 6298 Country Club Drive. Another Baptist church on the other side of town is a body of Christ that is in that locality. And the purpose of our meeting here together as members of the Brian Baptist Church is for the edification of the body of the believers who are members here. We fellowship together. We are in covenant together in this place so that our church services are not designed for lost people that would be here. And certainly we can't say that a communion service would ever be designed for people that are lost that come to the church. Now, Baptist people have always recognized this, and Protestant churches at one time were all willing to say the same, but practices have changed, and people think differently. Many of these churches don't do it this way any longer, but I'm not so much worried about what Protestants do. I'll mention them some tonight, but I'm not so much concerned about what they do. I don't even consider them to be members of true churches. We are not denominationalists. Uh, you're accustomed to hearing we call the Baptist church the Baptist denomination. Strictly speaking, we are not denominationalist. And this is because we believe that Christ started only one church, and that church cannot be split into dozens and dozens of different denominations that have hundreds of differences of opinion about doctrine. And so it doesn't make any sense for to say that everybody is a church when there are all these wild berries that are growing on the doctrinal tree. 
Now, it might surprise you a little bit, though, that I, that I think that denominationalism has, has helped to maintain at least a little bit of dignity in the practice of the Lord's Supper. And that's because there are many denominations of the past that recognize that there has to be at least, there must be at least some core doctrines believed and held in common for people to be admitted to the Supper. But today you have all these many denominations, you have all these upstart churches that don't emphasize core doctrines. So the principles of right practice of the ordinances are lost on many of them. And for example, there was a young couple that uh, visited here a few times not long ago and they were interested in becoming members of the church. And so I asked them about their baptism, where were you baptized? And they said, well, we were, we were baptized by a youth organization. And I said, well, we can't accept that baptism. Because only the church has the authority to baptize. Well, they didn't like the answer to that question, and so they didn't decide to stay here. Well, likewise, when we begin to talk about participating in the Lord's Supper, the peculiars of that, the restrictions that are put upon it, have been lost. I was told of a church in Petaluma that uh, puts the elements out on the table, and anyone that is free just to walk up to the table and take it as they please. doesn't matter who you are, you just walk up, and it's like a community buffet that they set out there, and they call that the Lord's Supper. Well, at this point, we would need to put a label on that practice, and that is what's called, well, I would call it, the purest form of impurity, which is open communion. So that's first. Let's look at this, the the open view of communion. Now, open communion means that Anybody and everybody is invited to the supper. Doesn't matter uh, if you're a member of the church. Doesn't matter if you've been baptized. Doesn't matter what group that you claim to belong to. Everybody's invited to come and sit at the table. Now, in the last discussion, I think that we answered the question of whether that is scriptural, and we concluded that it's not, especially in the cases of unbelievers. Uh, Paul would never, never countenance for a second the sanction of prohibiting or or rather the participation, letting those who are unbelievers to participate in the Lord's Supper. He, he's never going to allow that to happen. That would be insane, especially when we've just read here in the Scriptures that where he says that a, a person who is a believer taking the Lord's Supper unworthily uh, is guilty, would be guilty of damnation or, or, or it's cause for damnation. So how much more terrible would it be for an unbeliever to take the Lord's Supper. So Paul would just consider that to be blasphemy to invite an unbeliever to the supper. And I suppose that that particular view, that you would invite even lost people to come to the supper, that maybe we would call that wide open communion. Wide open communion, if you wanted to put another name to it. Uh, but that is, that's so far off the beaten track that that's scandalous. That's a more modern invention. Uh, there weren't any denominational churches of the past who ever would practice what we would call a wide open communion. Instead, there is a, a more conservative interpretation of Scripture. Some might be more likely to do those types of things. If you take denominations like the United Methodist or someone like them who uh, practice many terribly ungodly things, then you can well imagine that the Lord's Supper is not an issue for them. But it is more common among denominational churches to practice a different form of open communion. They don't restrict it to the denomination. In other words, communion then is open to anyone of any denomination with the assumption that they are baptized Christians. And so that means that they're open to those who are baptized as infants. 
The onus for taking the supper was actually put on the individual. And so the participant is the one who decides whether he's actually qualified to take the supper. Well, we reject that because we believe that the church is the guardian of the table. And we can't be that unless we put further restrictions upon the participants. So we're going to look at next the Baptist view of communion. Baptists understand the scriptures to have stronger exclusions than those who hold the open view of communion. Now, I want to show you this as we look at it tonight and and show you why our church believes in the most restrictive type of communion. Now, the historical Baptist view of the supper is that it's exclusive to those who are members of Baptist churches. Now, that's that's the, the broad category at first. And what that does is that it narrows the field to a difference between two types of restrictions. And that is, should we practice close communion, C-L-O-S-E, close communion, or should it be closed communion, C-L-O-S-E-D. I'll come back to that in just a minute. Now, the first thing that we need to establish is the parameters of those two different types of restrictions. There are certain assumptions that are made before we even get into the, into the discussion. And the first one would be that we're talking about someone who has personal salvation. I mean, obviously, this is a person who is saved. You can't be a member of a Baptist church unless you have been born again by the Holy Spirit. Secondly, there's the assumption that the person has been baptized by immersion. So we say that uh, a believer... Uh, a person to be baptized, or, or take the supper, I should say, must have credo-baptism. And you remember what that means. Credo means I believe. Baptism, of course, means immersion. You put that together, and you have a person who can attend the supper, must be someone who is a believing disciple, someone who has been baptized by immersion, and that person is able to come to the supper. So that is a prerequisite. And, and really, that has always been a staple of Christian belief. You do not come to the supper unless you are a baptized disciple. Now, interestingly, I interviewed a Baptist pastor who had been a pastor for about 25 years, and he decided that he was going to leave the pastorate to become a missionary. So he filled out one of our missionary questionnaires, and one of the questions that we ask is, would you willingly, knowingly, administer the supper to, a, to an unbaptized believer? And he said that he would, because he said the Lord's Supper is not, or baptism is not a prerequisite for the Lord's Supper. Well, we don't agree with that. Uh, uh, he said it's not necessary. And, and I would say, well, that view is way off, because even Protestants knew this much, that you don't invite people to come to the Supper who aren't baptized Christians. And they say that even though many of them don't even know what baptism is. So let me comment on this for just a minute that Protestant churches will allow Baptists to come to their communion. And that's because they don't believe that the mode of baptism is actually important. So if you have been immersed, that's fine. If you've been sprinkled for baptism, that would be fine. Even infant baptism is fine. Uh, just so long as there's a baptism in there somewhere, that's okay. But on the other hand, Baptists would not admit Protestants to come to our communion. Uh, R.L. Dabney, who was a brilliant conservative Presbyterian theologian of the 19th century, explained this better than most Baptists could. And he wasn't upset about it. He, he understood 
the, the logical explanation of it. I mean, he, he saw that this is a very reasonable thing, why Baptists don't admit pedo-Baptists to come to the communion, and that is because we don't believe they're actually baptized persons. Well, he recognized that. That wasn't a problem to him. He said that's the logical thing for a Baptist to do. Now, that shows us two things, that Dabney understood the need for baptism as a prerequisite to the supper, and it shows that Baptists do not consider anything other than credo-baptism to be proper. That's the historical Baptist position. Dabney recognized that, and way back there in the 19th century, that shows that Baptist people held on to that belief. Well, now we need to dig just a little bit deeper into this uh, discussion of the two views of restrictions among Baptists. There are many that have gone all the way over to the open view, uh, they will do that, but we don't consider that to be an historical view, so we're not going to talk much more about that. Uh, many visitors who, who come to our church don't understand that uh, we restrict the communion to a deeper level than the question, are you saved? We have a, we have a deeper restriction than that. And uh, they've never heard, when they, when they hear us say, they've never heard anything like that. they never heard anything different from what they've done, and this is because all they've been around is weak views, weak Baptist views, and also Protestant practice. So to come into a church like ours and be refused in taking the Lord's Supper, tell them you can't do it, that's, that doesn't sit very well with them. Now, let me explain these two views. These are close communion and closed communion. Now, again, before we go much further, we need to talk about the terminology. Now, as most of you know, I, I am a, a stickler for church history, and so I need to tell you how these two restrictive terms are actually different from the way that they were first identified in a doctrinal sense. The meanings of these two terms have actually switched over the past 75 years, and this is because Protestant churches claim to practice close communion. Now, they actually confuse the issue because they hijack that term, a term that would actually only be used by those who believe in local church. But to them, close communion means that the supper can be taken by any Protestant who is in doctrinal agreement, and uh, as opposed to a closed communion, which would mean only the members of that particular church. Now, originally, among Baptists, close communion meant only members of the local church. They called it a close communion because that's it's as close as you could get. On the other hand, a closed communion, communion would mean that it was closed to anybody but Baptist. So no matter what Baptist church that you're a member of, as long as you're a Baptist, that would be okay. But it's closed to all outsiders who aren't Baptist. And so I get a little bit aggravated by the confusion of these terms because most Baptists don't know enough uh, to understand that Protestants took over those terms. We used them. They took them over. And, and the reason that many Baptists uh, are, are lost on this issue about the terminology is they, they don't understand very well local church doctrine. And they might not even maintain that Baptists have a, a connection, that we are historically linked to Christ and the apostles. And so they are, in effect, denominationalist. So, unfortunately... Uh, at this point, it, it's just way too much swimming upstream to try to switch the terms back around to where they should be. So I will grudgingly use the terms as people describe them uh, today, and uh, I'll tell you what I believe and what this church believes about close and closed communion. 
So let me explain to you the accepted definitions of today. Close communion, C-L-O-S-E. That means that the supper is restricted to those who are members of Baptist churches. And there are many Baptists who practice this. There are many of the independent fundamental Baptists that practice it. It's not, not an uncommon thing for people to practice. Now, a few years ago, this issue uh, came up, and I do have to say that I respect the way that it was handled. We do not practice close communion. However, the Lancaster Baptist Church, which has the West Coast Baptist College, they practice close communion. So I received a letter from uh, Pastor Chapel there, uh, we had students that were at the school, and his letter was to tell us that um, he understood that there were Baptists who, and plenty of Baptists who supported the school there, that did not believe in close communion, but they practiced closed communion. And so his letter to me was to tell me that their church would not be insistent that those who attended the church there and those who attended the college would be made to participate in the Lord's Supper, but rather he told the students to refer back to what their local pastors believed about it and to follow that advice about taking the Lord's Supper. Now, as I said, I respect that position. That, that, that's a good position to take. But close communion would actually allow you to take the supper no matter whether you're a member of the church, um, uh, that particular church, but as long as it's a church of like faith and order, that would be okay. So then if you're visiting another church it would, uh, and they're taking the supper, it would be all right for you to take them with them. Now, just to be honest with you, we, we reject that, and we think that we have biblical principles for rejecting it. So we'll just have to look at why we do what we do. When I first came to Berean, uh, I asked Pastor Cregan what this church believed on that issue. I had, I had earmarked certain doctrines that I wanted to talk to him about, certain things that uh, I needed to know what the church practiced before I came. And uh, I got satisfied on, on some of the issues, but then I came to find out later that all things aren't as they seem. I'm not going to go into all of that now. But I found out that the church wasn't as restrictive on this issue as I was told that they were, now, that the church was. Now, those who knew the issue knew better. Uh, the person at that time who knew better was Larry Jefferson. And this was one of the issues that, that really sparked a very close friendship between me and Larry. In fact, I would say this is probably the thing that was the very beginning of our friendship. And that as I was visiting Berean before I became a member, and I was here on a night when um, the church was observing the supper, and I would not take the supper. And Larry noticed that, and he knew something's going on here. And so he questioned me about this, and we found out that we were in agreement on this about who should take the supper and who shouldn't. Well, his surprise at me not taking the supper really spoke volumes as to what the church really believed. The church was actually close communion, not closed communion. So when I became the pastor of the church, I was concerned about that and getting it changed to what I think is the right position, which is closed communion. Now, to be fair... We've got to see, does the Bible teach that? And if it does, uh, why does the Bible teach it? Or is this doctrine that we should believe? Is there reason to believe in closed communion? Well, what is closed communion? Well, let's run back over it again. Closed communion means that the supper is restricted to those who are members of this particular body of believers. Now, when we observe the communion, 
we posted notice in that Sunday night bulletin. I know all of you have seen it. Let, let me read it to you. To our guest, this evening at the close of the service, the members of Berean Baptist Church will observe the Lord's Supper. We are thankful for your attendance, and we cordially invite you to stay and observe the manner in which we remember our Lord's death through this memorial observance. However, we ask that you respectfully decline participation since we believe the ordinance is to be observed only by those that are members of this church. Our belief is not a judgment of the salvation of any person nor an assessment of their spiritual condition of anyone's heart. Neither do we judge ourselves to be spiritually superior to any of our guests. We are sinners saved by the grace of God. We simply believe the Lord taught that each church should observe the supper with its own membership. We sincerely hope you enjoy participation in the communion of the church of which you are a member. So let's look at reasons for this. Vindications is a better word. Vindications for why we believe the proper model for the Lord's Supper is closed communion. So what is our first reason? Number one is the nature of the church. If the church is local and visible as we believe that it is, then the Lord's Supper is a church ordinance that should be observed only by those who are members of the church. Now that uh, indicates consistency of a church being a body in total as it meets together, as it assembles. This is the complete body of the Lord Jesus Christ in this particular location. And so a person who is not a member of the church is not a member of this particular body. Now if the church is universal, that would really wouldn't be a problem. Uh, and, a, and a Baptist who who believes who says he believes in local church, but then he practices close communion, is at best inconsistent. At worst, you might say that he's ignorant of what local church actually means. And so what he does is he merges these two doctrines of universal church and local church, and he's not exclusive to either one of those. Now, you have to stay with me here to understand how this works. If you'll look over another page here, to 1 Corinthians 12, verse number 13. 1 Corinthians 12, verse number 13. This is what Paul says. For by one Spirit we are all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one Spirit. Now a person, a church, that believes in local church doctrine cannot take baptism in that verse to mean anything other than water baptism. And yet there are some who believe that, uh, who say they believe in local church, and they interpret this as being Holy Spirit baptism by which every Christian is baptized into the body of Christ. Well, the scriptures teach that the church is the body of Christ, and so unless there is another body of Christ of some type that's, that's not the church, then the only conclusion that you can come to if you believe that this is Holy Spirit baptism is that the body of Christ is a universal church. So that gives us a mystical sense of the church. A mystical church is inconsistent with local church doctrine. And so if a church teaches local church and then invites all Baptists to join in the communion, that is inconsistent doctrine. So either you have to give up that the church is a mystical body and the interpretation of 1 Corinthians 12:13 to be Holy Spirit baptism, or you have to give up on the local church. You can't have both. It's, it has to be one or the other. 
Uh, I hope you follow the reasoning here. That if, you're, if you don't have a universal... Let me explain it again. If you don't have a universal church, and every Christian is baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ, then every person who is baptized in the Holy Spirit becomes a member of something, of some kind of a body. And the only kind of body that's described in the, in the Scriptures is the church, right? The body of Christ is the church. So if you didn't believe in universal church and you tried to get Holy Spirit baptism squeezed out of that, then you're going to have to give up the local church doctrine. You simply cannot have both. So consistency says that those who believe that the nature of the church is local must practice closed communion. Now, if you didn't get all of that, ask me later. I'll try to explain it to you again. Now, secondly, another vindication is the institution of the supper. Closed communion is vindicated by the model that Christ gave in the institution of the supper. Now, when Christ instituted uh, the supper, the only ones that were invited to come to this supper are the twelve apostles. And actually, of course, as I've said before, there are only eleven of them because Judas had already gone out to betray the Lord. He wasn't there when it was given. And at this point of the ministry, though, Jesus was three years in, and there were many others that were following him. In fact, there were at least two that were outside the uh, apostles that followed Jesus very, very closely. And those two men would have been Justice and Matthias. Just a little bit of time after Jesus was resurrected, these two men were the ones that were considered to be uh, a replacement for Judas. All that tells us that obviously they followed the Lord very, very closely. They, they could be put into the place where they might be elected to be an apostle to replace Judas. Then you also remember that in Jesus' ministry that he appointed 70 believers that he sent out two by two to be witnesses of the gospel. Uh, there were perhaps hundreds that were believers by this particular time of Jesus' ministry. On the day of Pentecost, there were 120 believers that assembled and Jesus' mother was there along with other women. But we find that none of these, not Judas, not Matthias, not the 70, not the 120, not any others were invited to this supper that were believers. None were, only the apostles. And why is that? Well, because the apostles at the supper, they were the church. The Bible says that the apostles were set first in the church. And even though there were many, many other people that were saved at that time, there were other believers, the supper was instituted as a church ordinance to those who are members of that church, that first church. And those charter members are those 11 apostles. And was Jesus trying to tell us something by that? I think that he was, because all we need to do is just look a little bit further, that there are other things that we know about the supper that would support that. So thirdly then, closed communion is vindicated by unity of doctrine. Now you look at this text of 1 Corinthians, and if you just back up uh, 1 Corinthians 11, verse number 18. For first of all, when you come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. That verse was written immediately preceding Paul's instructions on the Lord's Supper. And one of the stipulations that he gave is the absolute need of unity. We are a body. That's the picture, isn't it? And that's what the Bible says, that the picture we have is of a body. Ephesians 5.30 says, For we are members of his body and of his flesh and of his bones. Now, there isn't any other way that we can express unity except by our doctrine. Now, the point that Paul makes here is that division can't be consistent with the metaphor of the church as a body. 
Now you go on reading in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and you'll see that point is nailed down. He's consistently talking about the body, the body, the body, where members in particular and so on, no divisions, no schisms in the body, so forth. That is unity. Now when people who aren't members of the church take the communion with us, then how are we to determine if there is unity? Now, we might have some good friends that we invite to take this, uh, come into the uh, services with us, and, and we know what they believe, and we say, well, those are good Christian people. They believe just like we do here. They're not members of the church, but they believe like we do. Well, then, would we prefer that the Bible should say something like, well, all the members of the church and their good friends are invited to partake of the supper. But we don't find that in the Scriptures. Now, the point here is that there's no way that we can ensure unity with those that are not a part of the body. In fact, we find that there are often sharp divisions with others. I mean, how could we ever take people that come from charismatic churches, from assemblies of God, or from Pentecostal churches? How can they take communion with us? They have a very great, deep doctrinal divide with us. And then between us and other Baptists, the divisions not, might not be as bad, but we know that there are some Baptist churches that we won't fellowship with. There are some that are just too liberal. There are churches in Santa Rosa that say, well, if you wanted to know they were Baptists, you kind of have to look. You have to search because they've removed Baptists from the name. They don't advertise that. And we would say, well, that's, you know, they're, they're teaching things that are far too liberal that we would consider them to be in fellowship with this church. Now, my point is, that we can't police all of that. That doesn't fit the model of the body anyway. And then there are some independent Baptists that would never let me preach in their pulpit. And that's because I believe in doctrines of grace. So they would not let me preach in their pulpit. I'm not hostile about that. I'm not. I'm, I'm not hostile about it. But I know that there are others are. They make that a test of fellowship. And they won't fellowship with us because of it. So you say, how are we going to sit at the Lord's table together? There's no unity of doctrine there. How can we fellowship? We can't sit together. And then there are many other things. Uh, what about Baptists who believe that it's okay for Christians to drink alcohol? Don't we also believe that there's a purity issue involved with the Lord's Supper? There's a holiness issue that's involved. And we're not sitting in judgment of, of other people, but I can tell you that the Scriptures give us the right to judge the difference between right and wrong. And all that you need to do is look at 1 Corinthians and see the rebukes that Paul gives to this Corinthian church. He was making decisions about who can partake of the supper, the right and wrong, and things that the church ought to do. Now, people that are in the same church love each other, they work together, they know each other. They fellowship together. And so they're much, much less likely to deal with issues of division. Well, let's give you one more. Uh, time is short here, but this is, the, this is actually the clincher that I saved for last. And we need to look at this one thoroughly. And that is the issue of church discipline. Church discipline vindicates closed communion. Now, discipline is commanded by the apostle. I want you to turn to the fifth chapter of 1 Corinthians, and we'll look at verse number 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse number 11. But now I have written unto you not to keep company. If any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer, 
or a drunkard, or an extortioner, with such an one know not to eat. For what have I to do to judge them also that are without? Do not ye judge them that are without? But them that are without, God judges. Or he says, do not ye judge them that are without, but with them that are without, God judges. Therefore put away from among yourselves that wicked person. Now bear with me just a little bit here. I don't want you to crucify me for this. Promise me that you won't. But I'm going to read these same verses to you from the ESV. Okay, don't panic. Just hang with me here. This is what the ESV says. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. But what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Now the meaning of that's clear. We don't have jurisdiction over anybody that's not a member. We can't judge them. If we did, we couldn't enforce any kind of action against them. We don't even really care to try to do anything like that. Now notice though the penalty that's imposed in verse number 11. Do not eat with a person who is guilty of these sins. Don't be partakers with them. Don't even eat with them. Now what does he mean by that? Don't eat with them. Well, does he mean don't go to McDonald's with him? Don't go to Applebee's with him? Don't sit down with him in the restaurant? And now if you go to the drive-thru, that's okay. But you can't go in the restaurant and sit down with him. No, don't, don't eat that way. Well, obviously, he's not talking about that. He's speaking of eating at the Lord's table. And he says, don't eat with people who are guilty of these sins. So what do you do? Verse number 13. He says, put that wicked person from away from you. So in other words, he's saying, use excisive discipline on that person. The point of this is to show that offender how serious that his sin is, that it, excludes, that it includes exclusion from the church, and of course also by that exclusion from the supper. Now, this entire chapter is about the discipline of someone who committed the terrible sin of incest. Paul told the church, get rid of him. Now look at the reference that he gives for it in verses 6 and 7. Why does he say to do it? Your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Now he says you've got to get rid of that person because sin brings down the whole church. A little leaven affects the whole lump. Get rid of him because you are unleavened. And he says, Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. And what does that tell us? These are Lord's Supper requirements. The church has been purged by the blood of Christ. He was sacrificed to remove our sins. And so what we ought to do is to remove sins from the body of Christ when we find it's there. Isn't that clear to us? This is discipline that's taught in Scripture. And so if a person comes in off the street and he wants to take the communion... How do we have any idea of his lifestyle? How do we have any idea of what he believes, what, what kind of person he is? Could we do anything about it if we did know? Well, people, as I said earlier, don't like to be excluded from the communion. But, but think about this. What if we decided, well, we need to find out. We've got people that come in off the street. They want to take the communion with us. And so we say to them, well, here's a questionnaire for you to fill out. And we want you to list here all the things that you do. We want to know what your lifestyle is. We want to know what you're up to. 
Do you think they would be more offended by that? I think they probably would be. Now, this only makes sense. We cannot judge non-members. We can't do anything to them if we did. And so, by Paul's instructions, this, this means that we could only accept people into the communion who are willing to submit to church authority. That these are people who agree with our church statement of faith and they also submit to the authority of the pastor. Now, I don't know of anything that nails down closed communion any better than this, that we have a duty to honor God in the supper, to honor the Lord, and we do that by restricting it as the Lord indicates that we should restrict it. And we haven't harmed anybody by the practice. Nobody gets hurt here. Who's going to suffer from this? Anybody who wants to take the supper only needs to go to the church that they're a member of to take it. We're not passing judgment on anyone because we would never even consider that we need to. We don't need to pass judgment on people who aren't members of this church. So why do we practice closed communion? Because of the nature of the church. Because of the way that the Lord instituted the supper. Because of the unity of doctrine in the church. And then because of church discipline. So if you believe the church is local and visible, this is the only position that makes sense. And that's our position. It's an historical position. It defines us. What I want to be known as is an historical Baptist church because that's the thing that connects us to Christ and the apostles. Well, I have one more sermon that I want to give you on this, on that first T. The next one is about examining ourselves. Uh, this is the personal discernment of the supper. Then also we're going to talk a little bit about why unleavened bread? Why fruit of the vine? Why, why those particular elements? And those things take wisdom in our interpretation of Scripture. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time you've given us together tonight to look a little uh, more closely into your word and to determine what do we read here that helps to define our doctrine. And whatever we find, whether it sits well with us or not, whether it's a personal opinion or not, the only thing that we can do is go strictly by the Word of God and say we practice these things because the Bible teaches it. We don't ever want to be outside the Word, to make presumptions about it, to do anything that's not supported by Scripture. Lord, help us to be that kind of people. And we know that we will be if we maintain those historic Baptist principles that go all the way back to Jesus Christ and the Apostles. And without a, a human pride that's there, we are pride, prideful in the Lord Jesus Christ that you've given us the truth of these doctrines and that allow us to teach them to your people tonight. So thank you, Lord, for it. Bless our people. Draw us closer to you. Help us to know the word better. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.